Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of Crazy Money. I am your host, Paul Ollinger, and I am happy that you are here today. Hey, let me ask you a question. Where do you sit on the social hierarchy? You might not think about it daily, but if I asked you to compare your status to that of one of your friends, you'd probably know the answer. You'd be above some, you'd be below others, but you'd probably be on about the same level as many people. Perhaps you'd follow up with questions like, well, do you mean who has more money or who has more recognition in the community or who's more attractive or physically fit? Who has more friends might be the answer to that question. But these requests for clarification demonstrate the nature of status and how we go about gaining it and retaining it, whether we are conscious or not conscious of our efforts to do so. My guest this week is Will Storr. He's the author of a fascinating book called The Status Game, or The Status Game, depending upon whether you live in the United States or the United Kingdom. He's the author of six critically acclaimed books, including The Status Game and Selfie and the Science of Storytelling. His writing has appeared in The Guardian, The Sunday Times, The New Yorker, and The New York Times, and his journalism has been recognized with awards from the National Press Club, the One World Press, and Amnesty International. And if I haven't yet convinced you of his status, I'll also share that he's a great-looking guy who grows giant yams. And you'll understand that reference in about 20 minutes if you stick with me. In this conversation, Will and I discuss why status matters whether the pursuit of status is a fool's game for small-minded people with totally fragile egos. Why are you looking at me? Don't look at me. Uh, we talk about a totally bizarre source of status in Polynesia that demonstrates the arbitrariness and locally relative nature of status. We talk about whether it's better to be a big fish in a small pond or a small fish in a big pond. We talk about how the quest for status shows up in politics and religion, and boy, does it ever. And lastly, we discuss how the thirst for status among even the most rich and famous among us, even the likes of Sir Paul McCartney, demonstrate the insatiable need for this elusive and addictive drug that is the status drug. And here to discuss it is Mr. Will Storr. Will Storr, welcome to Crazy Money. Thanks for having me, Paul. It's great to be here. All right. We're, we're here to talk about your book, The Status Game. So I have to start uh, with a simple question, Will. Is the quest for status a self-indulgent game for insecure people? <laughs> no. Categorically oh, thank not. God. The quest- thank God. Thank yeah. God. I was, <laughs> I was worried. I was very worried about myself here, Will. I'm going to say state. It's going to be slightly awkward when I'm talking to Americans because we say status and you say status, but we just have to deal with it. We'll, we'll, we'll make it work. Let's not talk yeah. about soccer and football, for God's sake. <laughs> so... The quest for status is part of our human nature. You know, we've been doing it for tens of thousands of years, actually longer. We've been competing for status since we were animals, since before we were human. And the quest for status has built civilization. You know, it's built cities, towns, it's made vaccines, it's sent us to space. It can be kind of shallow and self-serving and pointless, but most of the time, um, it isn't. Uh, you know, it can also be um, a terrible thing. You know, Putin at the moment, his quest for status is putting the safety of the world in danger. But also, you know, Bessos, Musk, you know, the, the, the new 21st century space race, you know, that, that's a kind of positive version of the status game. So, yeah, so, so it's not shallow and um, necessarily and self-serving uh, necessarily. Uh, you know, the quest for status is the engine of human progress, I, I would argue. So when dogs meet each other, they sniff each other uh, in, in a way to get to know each other and, and to figure out who's the top dog, right? How yeah. do humans go about doing that? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Well, we have an enormous um, armory of kind of tactics and strategies for doing that. Neuroscientists talk about the brain having this subconscious, they call it a status detection system. So as soon as we get in, it, it, we're in contact with somebody else, you know, it's switching on. Uh, and in, in, in so many ways, we're not even consciously aware of it. We're measuring where we sit versus this person. So it's obvious things like accents, how well, you know, we're dressed, um, um, uh, you know, all those kind of obvious markers, the watch, all, all that stuff. But there's also kind of a huge amount of things we're not even conscious of. Like, you know, some um, um, psychologists have found that there's a actually a, um, a frequency to our speaking voice that we can't consciously hear, uh, but you can subconsciously pick it up. And what they find is that um, when you've got a group of people or any more than one person, the, do- the highest status person in that group will set the tone and everybody else's tones will match you know, that person. So, so, so this set of psychologists analyzed a series of interviews 
who's that guy? I've forgotten the the really old guy, Larry King. Yeah, yeah, that's it, Larry King. He's, he he never dies. He's like about 175 <laughs> years old. Methuselah of CNN. Yeah, they, they they analyzed the frequencies going on there, and they could tell who he felt superior to, and who he kind of felt subservient to by seeing who who he matched with and who matched with him. Yeah. So we we play deferential roles when we feel we're not the alpha dog in 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 a group or on a one on one kind of conversation. Yeah, and and it's mostly unconscious, so we don't even know that we're doing it. So when when you get an email from out of the blue from some anonymous podcaster in in America that you've never heard of before, <laughs> what kind of status games? What, what's processing in your head going like? Is this guy worth my time? Is that a status <laughs> evaluation? Do you yeah, think? of course it is. That's exactly right. <laughs> that is a status game. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's uh, well, well, what you do when you approach is you say, look at all these amazing people that I've had on the podcast. Yeah. And I look down the list and I go, well, these people are higher status than me. So it's a win <laughs> for me. So and it really is as simple as that. I mean, in the book, I write about this idea that status leaks, you know, and if we're seen and felt to be in the periphery of, other, of people who are higher status than us, then that's good yeah. for us. But it also works in the reverse that those higher status people might see my name on this and go, damn it. Why did I do that crazy money podcast? <laughs> it's really gone downhill. You know? <laughs> but well, let's talk. Well, let's talk about that. But we all have status that, that is relative and, and there's variables. There's different columns of status, right? So you're a yeah. best selling author of several different books, but you're probably mm. not the wealthiest person that you know. Right. Yeah. So so you have relative status in these different areas of your life. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that, that that's the basic kind of theory of. Of, of the idea really which is that we don't play one status games we play many status games and that human life is played up of multiple status games and fundamentally how it works is that we have these tribal brains we, we've evolved for to to form groups and to operate in groups and you know there used to be a literal group our, our tribe you know for tens of thousands of years and now in the modern world we just form groups it's just what we do if you look you know look at human life whether it's a soccer team or a political team or a national team you know Russia versus Ukraine. It's just groups competing for status that, you know, all the way up and down. That's what human life is. It's groups competing for status. And we compete for status within our groups, like, you know, versus other players within our game, but also games compete. So, 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 you know, when the Republicans win, when the Democrats win, when this baseball team wins versus this baseball team, you know, when our group wins, we personally gain status. And that's why people go so mad about sports because lo logically sports doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's just a ball over there and a ball over there. But of course, people, I mean, we, in the UK, you know, you see people if, when their teams win, they're growing men in tears. You know, why? <laughs> because it's the, because status is this incredibly important um, resource that we have. And it matters. You know, it really matters. And these kind of tough men, you know, um, are devastated when, they, when their team wins because it, it, it's, it's, their, it's them. It's their status that's been attacked. But how does how does status relate to belongingness? Because that's really about their identity with a tribe, right? I mean, if you're talking about a football club that you care about, the you know I'm a Hotspurs fan or whatever, like, and then they lose, does my status take a hit, or is it just that I care so much about the belong my my identity with this club that it that that that's what hurts? I don't think you can separate them. So so your your identity really is the status games that you're playing. Like if you ask people, how do you identify? And, you know, and what's interesting is when you look at sort of categories like without wanting to get any political at all, you know, right. race and gender and sexuality. Sure. Some gay guys identify very strongly as I'm a gay guy and it's a big part of their identity. And, and they're, they're really tuned into issues of homophobia and, you know, discrimination. But some gay guys couldn't give us us. They just don't care. It's not part of their identity. So they're not so fussed about that stuff. So it's really interesting for me when you think about your multiple identities. We all have multiple identities and those identities tend to be the things that well, almost always are. I would argue always are the things we plug our status into, you know, even, even things like, I mean, the, the, the idea of the status game is really about social life. It's not really about family life, but even, even as a, as a, as a, as a parent, like we don't want to be a father and a mother. We want to be a good father and a good mother. That's what's important to us. That, that, that we're the uh, we're, we're the above average. So even in, in it, it, when we identify as a father and a mother or a brother and a sister, there's also status built into that. Is that we don't just want to be a dad. We want to be a really great dad. Right. Or, and if you don't identify as a father, you probably are a bad father because <laughs> you don't care about it. You haven't got any of your status plugged into it. The sources of status in in modern Western world are are we, we take for granted, I think, which are you know uh, money, success, professional prestige, that kind of thing, and and they feel as if they're self evident truths, right? And yet you present 
the example of a Polynesian tribe whereby you demonstrate the arbitrariness of status symbols. So why would a guy in, in a Polynesian island look at another guy and go, God, I wish I had his yams? <laughs> well, that, that's a really great example that was discovered in this yeah, Polynesian island called Pompeii. Um, I think it was back in the 50s by a, an anthropologist over there. And it's a great example that just shows you the power of status. So, you know, when we think about like your first question was 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 the classic, OK, status is this shallow. I'm thinking about Kim Kardashian. I'm thinking about Kanye West. You know, it's it's silly. It's ridiculous. But 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 fame and money are, are, are but two ways of which we can earn status. Our group, every human group has a different way of scoring their status. Like in a soccer team, it's how many goals have you scored? If you're like a hip hop artist or in Britain, a soccer star, you know, one of the ways you're measuring your status is by your income and by, how, by, by the fantastic car that you're driving. But if your status game is, is you, know, I, you know, like, a, like wellness, if you're a meditator and, a, mm. you know, th 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 then actually you might look down your nose at people who've got the latest expensive car because what a waste of money and it's polluting the, it's polluting the world. That's right. You know, so we all have these different ways of measuring status. And the Yam thing is this perfect example of, you know, it's this little island and it's very stratified as, as most human societies are top, you know, to the bottom. And it's hard to move around that status game unless you grow a massive yam and they have these like biannual chiefly feasts. The, he, the chief holds these feasts. And if you bring the man who brings the biggest yam to the feast um, is literally declared number one. That's what they call him. And he's celebrated. <laughs> and so, so what ha what's happened on Pompeii is that, of, of course, everybody is obsessed with growing yams and not only they're obsessed with growing yams, a whole kind of etiquette of morality is blown up around these yams. Like for example, the, the the yams you're growing for competition are done in secret out in the woods, like in your secret yam pit. And guys get up at two in the morning to tend to their secret competition yams, and um and they're like a secret, like no one's supposed to know where they are. But but even the yams that are growing near your house that are small yams that you grow to eat, you're not allowed to look at them. And if someone glances at your yam pit, that's a terrible you know, moral thing that you shouldn't do. Um, uh, but, but even more importantly than that, like they've got really amazingly good at growing yams and the yams they grow in Pompeii are so big, they, they have to build special stretches. And like, you've got like a dozen men carrying these massive yams into the, into, into the um, feast. So like, to me, that's an amazing example. Not because, not because it just shows how arbitrary some of these markers are, like Rolex watches. It tells us time is good as a Casio watch that's going to cost you eight bucks, but it's a marker of status. So a, it shows you how obsessed we are at status. But I think even more importantly than that, it shows you how unbelievably brilliant the human animal is at playing status games. And, you know, if you, if you plug your status into growing a massive yam, a human being will figure out, or a group of human beings, even more importantly, will figure out how to grow the biggest yams you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> but if you plug your status into, like, um, designing a vaccine that's going to solve the COVID pandemic, that's what human beings are going to do. And, and that is, you know, the core of why we're so incredibly innovative. That's why we've taken over the world. That's why we sold. That's why we have iPhones, you know, because we've plugged our status into or people have plugged their status into solving these incredible problems. So how did this evolutionary attribute come about? Well, because we're tribal. So, so, so humans are these weird um, apes. Like we, we are ape. We're not even a, some of some people think we're, we're a, We've evolved from the apes, but we're, we technically we are apes. Um, but but we've obviously not like the rest of the apes. And and the difference is that we have solved the problems of highly cooperative living. So unlike the other apes, I mean the other apes do live in troops, but our human groups are highly highly cooperative. And that's why we have language, so we can, you know, coordinate with each other um, and and work in groups. So um, in the days in which we're evolving, the whole group had to pitch in to if we were going to survive, because life was really tough in those days. It was really hard. You know, we, life expectancy was mid thirties, you know, it was, it was hard. And so there had to be the, a system of kind of incentive, you know, developed to kind of compel people to act not selfishly, but for the tribe and to, you know, innovate and to become really good at stuff. And that's the status game. So in the tribes in which we evolved, you know, there were really, there are three main ways that humans earn status. The first one is dominance. So dominance is, is violence, aggression, the threat of it. That, that's, the, that's what animals do mostly. You know, um, that's a much more animal typical way of, you know, hens, when they meet each other, peck each other until a pecking order is established. That's, you know, that's dominance. We, obviously, we still do that. That's what's going obviously, in, in Ukraine at the moment. But, it, but in the human groups, the, these kind of prestigious forms of status game arose. 
two of them. One is the virtue game. So how selfless are you? How giving are you? How good are you at following the rules? How um, sincerely do you believe the myths and stories of this tribe? Uh, and so, you know, the better you got at playing that game, the higher you rose in status. Um, and, and then secondarily, the success game. So competence. How good of a hunter are you? How good of a storyteller, a sorcerer? Um, and, and, and the better that you got at those games, the higher you raised in status. And, what, and what, that, what that is a test of is your value to the group. So that's what status is. Status is the feeling of I'm valuable to my tribe. And the more valuable you are to your tribe, the higher you raise in status. So vir virtue games are important because selflessness is important. Being giving is important. Not putting yourself first is important. But also following rules is important in human groups. Um, Success games are important because, of course, if you're a great hunter, you're bringing back calories. If you're a great storyteller, that has value. If you're a great sweet potato finder, that has value. So, 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 so that's how it worked. You know, twenty thousand years ago, before civilization, um, the more value you provided, the higher your status, and the higher you, your status, um, the more influence you had, the more food you had, the better food you had, the safer your sleeping sites, the greater your access to your choice of mates. Um, so. And that's still true today. You know, the more status we have in 2022, it's the same. The better food you have, the more food you have, the greater your access to choice of mates, the safer your sleeping sites. So it's, human life hasn't changed. Um, uh, but we've evolved to crave status because it's, it's, it's this basic rule the subconscious brain knows and has been following for, you know, thousands and thousands of years, which is go for status. Because if you go for status, everything else gets better. Well-being follows status. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, well-being is more complicated than ju just being attached to status. Um, the other thing that, that that is equally important, but you know, isn't talked about quite so much because it's not about that, is you know, you mentioned belongingness. Mm -hmm. So, because because we're tribal, we've evolved to you know, um, some psychologists talk about getting along and getting ahead. So, belongingness and status. We want people to like us and love us and, and accept us. So that's one set of motivations and incentives. But also, once we're in the group. Nobody wants to be just considered likable but useless. That that isn't what people want. <laughs> I know that guy. I know that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, yeah. We, and we, no one wants to be likable but useless. We want to be likable but valued. Uh, feel right, like right. people are looking up to us. Uh, and so, getting along and getting ahead. So, we want to be. We want to feel like we we belong. And we want to feel like we're valued. That those are those two things. And, and obviously, the book is mostly about the second thing. But the first thing is just as important. Yeah, you write that once we join a group, we are rarely content to flop about on its lower rung. Yeah. So, we, yeah. so we don't want to, we, there's this instinct to get ahead. And we all know people who have uh, a more developed instinct to get ahead, perhaps a ruthless desire to succeed. What are the pros and cons of ambition inside of a group? Yeah, that, that, that's, that's, that, that's a fascinating question. Um, well, because like all of these things, like everything, um, you know, human brains don't come off the conveyor belt of Foxconn. We're not identical. Every human brain is different, you know. Uh, it's not something we think about humans as if we're all like the same thing. And we're like, it's just right. like we're not computers. So everyone's dials are set differently, you know, and some people have relatively high need for status and some people don't. And some people have really relatively high need for belongingness and some people don't. So, so um, you know, somebody obviously, you know, obviously the, the first example everyone's going to think of is Donald Trump. Donald Trump has extremely high need for status. And actually, you know, part, part of my work is I work as a ghostwriter. So I work with very, very successful individuals um, writing their books for them. So, I, I, you know, I, I've, I've had the kind of fascinating experience of getting to know really super successful people. And they are different to me. They are prepared to work longer hours. They are much more obsessed with things like where am I on the bestseller charts and how much money I've mm. got. Their dials are set higher. And so sometimes they're quite difficult people to work with. They expect a lot and they're short tempered and, and, or, or, you know, or, or, um, have minimal patience for failure. And, and so that's difficult. So some people, you know, they become unpopular often, but also they are the ones that are changing the world and making a difference and creating jobs for other people. So, you know, are they, is it good or is it bad? I just think that's such a, it's a too simplistic kind of lens through which to view all this. It's such complex stuff. Um, but, but, but yeah, I, I think it's just the truth that the people who are really changing the world and making a difference are usually very high in need for status. Like Gandhi would have been very high in need for status without a doubt. Um, and they're both often doing incredible things. They're also often doing terrible things like Putin and, you know, um, some politicians that we, we, we might feel like naming or, or maybe not. 
Um, uh, but but they're also. Is that, I mean, Steve Jobs is a great example. Steve Jobs famously was a very un, apparently a very unpleasant man. If you read the Walter Isaacson biography, very difficult, mm-hmm. very driven, extremely high need for status. Um, but he changed the world. You know, he, he, like he, he, it was him that. Well, he didn't invent the iPhone, but he kind of led that project, didn't he? Sure. Yeah. So ambition can lead to great innovation, but if we're too ambitious, we can get thrown out of the tribe. And mm. that in ancient times led to death. Now it feels like social isolation. That's right. Yeah. So um, when I was thinking about status and whether, you know, the, the first thing you ask is, is it true what I'm, this argument that status is complete, so important to human beings? And, and, and I sort of, I thought, well, if it is, if you're going to argue for a whole book that it's so important, like, figure out what happens when we lose status, because that's got to be quite bad. If it's this thing that's more important to us than gold and sometimes even life, um, it must be pretty bad when we lose it. And so I found this paper called Humiliation and Its Consequences. And these psychologists define humiliation as a loss of status that's so bad that your group basically expels you, that um, there's no chance that you're ever going to be able to claim status from that group in the future. So it's a terrible um, state of being. If you consider how important our status is to us to have that feeling that just we've been thrown out of the group and just give up, never come to us asking for status again, because you're never going to get it. And what you find is that humiliation is, um, researchers call it the nuclear bomb of the emotions. It's like this unique Mm and dangerous state. And, it, uh, and humiliation is what connects things like serial killers to incels, to spree killers, to terrorists, to um, sp- spies that spy against their country. It evens, it's even implicated in, in, in acts of genocide. Um, you, you know, so um, it's, it is a uniquely disastrous state of being for human beings. And that is, uh, I argue, because it's a lack of, it's a, it's a sudden and, and dramatic loss of status. You talk about how modern people are more status status oriented than those people from even a few decades ago. That that the nineteen eighties was some sort of inflection point in our in our in our in our orientation towards greed and fame and and money. Mm. Um, but you, and this is all before social media. So first mm. of all, what happened? What, what do you think has happened of the decades leading up to the early aughts? And then yeah. let's talk about the the gasoline that social media has thrown on those instincts. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm, I'm not sure that our need, like, like our need for status, has gone up since the '80s. But I think the way that we're playing status games has has changed. So you know, if you change the rules of the game, you change what we have to do in order to earn status in it. And if you change how we're trying to earn status, you change us as a people. Like, you know, we, you know, we, 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 we kind of become the games we play. And mm. it's really interesting when you look at how um, in the West, it's the economy, which is this great kind of huge force, which um, controls so many of our status games. So before the 1980s, in between, say, the Great Depression and the Second World War in the in the early sort of mid twentieth century, um, those kind of shocks knocked us in the West into this much more collective state. So we much we became much less individualist. So mm. you know the, the the middle section of the twentieth century in the US and in the UK was the time of you know um, um, the welfare state in the UK, healthcare for all. I was amazed to find out that in the US in the fifties the top rate of tax was ninety one percent. I mean, mm. I'd associate 91% tax with almost a communist country, but that's how it was right. in, in the US. It was the top rate of tax. It's extraordinary how collective we were in the West. The New Deal. So it was, it, we, we became much more collective. And it, and it worked for a while. But in the 70s, it all started going wrong. The economy started, you know, falling to pieces. And, and so Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, uh, at the same time, were confronted with the same problem, which was like the, the, way that we're, the, the way that we're running the West is failing. We have to come up with a new idea. And the new idea that they came across was this philosophy um, called neoliberalism. And what neoliberalism essentially is, is like get rid of all that collective stuff and ramp up competition everywhere you can find it. So ramp it up. So getting rid of the collective stuff was, th- was things like attacking the unions. So in the UK, we had the miners' strikes. In the US, you had the air traffic controllers' strikes. I think, I think mm. it's a totemic battle with them. Um, you know, it's about... It's about um, getting rid of as, as many of the regulations on banking and business as you possibly can. It's about um, reducing the welfare state. It's about um, cutting the budgets for, you know, it, over here, the, the National Health Service. So 
we, we we want to redesign the, um, um, the, the 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 money games of the West in such a way that you have to be competitive. And it worked. Like, like it, it, in the, the creepy thing is in 1981, Margaret Thatcher was interviewed about, you know, what are you doing? You know, what was this big project? And she said something like, um, the project is economic, but the object is to change the soul, which is mm. just an incredibly sinister thing to say. Um, but it's even more kind of chilling when you, when you realize that she, she absolutely did that. And so did Ronald Reagan. So if you think about who we were as a people in the West in 1965, it was the hippie era. It was screw the man with smoking spliffs anti-materialistic, very groupish. Um, uh, and then if you think about who we were in 1985 as a people, we were in Wall Street with the red braces, you know, greed is good. Like that, that's what happened uh, between yeah. 65 and 85. And what, what changed is the economy, neoliberalism. You know, we, we, we had to become, in order to win status in the world, we had to become super competitive. So we became super competitive. You know, the 80s was the era also of the keep fit revolution. So body image became a big thing in the 80s. And of course, it still is today. Um, you know, um, so, 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 so the, the, Mark, you know, the, when you ask kids in the 80s versus the 70s what they wanted to be when they grew up, it, it, um, kids started to talk about money much more in the 80s. And then mm. as that grew into the 90s and the aughts, it becomes celebrity and we get celebrity the celebrity culture. So, 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 so that to me is a really pers- I find it a fascinating example of how if you change the rules by which, change the game, change the rules by which somebody earns status, the people change on a massive scale. Well, and the scoreboard has changed as well, right? So today we have 24, we talked about the 24-7 news cycle back mm. in the, you know, the 80s that changed the way news get covered. But today, every individual has the opportunity to create their own curated version of themselves for all the world to see. And it's yeah. a nonstop, real-time scoreboard where I can see the number of likes I have, I can see the number of views of my reels, and everybody else can see them too, to, to, mm. to some extent, right? And so how does the scoreboard change, uh, ch- change the way we act and, 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 and really just increase the, the importance and hysteria around our own personal ambition and quest for status? Yeah, so social media, of course, is the next big thing that happened. We 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 still live in the neoliberal era. We, we are, you know, the, like the, the Thatcher and Reagan era, you know, continues. Um, um, we're still, you know, we're still in the, we're living in this hyper competitive individualistic set of games. But social media ha- has kind of concentrated that even more. I mean, social media is just a status. It's a huge global status game. That's why. I mean, the latest figures are that more than half the population of the world are on social media, which is just extraordinary. Um, you know, more than 4 billion or almost 4 billion people are on social media. So, you know, so why is it so universally successful? Well, it's because it's a status game. You know, if you, you, I talked earlier on about those three human games, dominance, which is threat, aggression, coercion, virtue, which is morality, following the rules, enforcing the rules, believing the, the, the sacred beliefs. And then there's competence, success, my success markers, what I've achieved, um, the markers of my success, my holiday, my shoes, my watch. Mm. That's social media, dominance, virtue, and success. That that's what it is. Like it, like, and there's some belongingness in there too. Of course, you know, Facebook is does belongingness probably better than any other of the social media websites. But you know, LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, it's dominance, virtue, and success. Um, so, so it's quite an extraordinary thing, social media. And, and I think people maybe even underestimate its power because what social media is, it's a brand new kind of universe by which we can earn status. So there are, there are many people, I, I couldn't even begin to put a number on it, but many, many people around the world who have more status packed into that than they have in their real life. You know, so they have, you know, with the followers, like, so, so, so that is how important the social media game becomes to them because most of their value is online, is, you know, comes off so, a website. So, so I think those are the people that are, yeah, I mean, some, some of this would become incredibly wealthy, or, you know, and famous off the, off the back of um, social media. So, 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 so yeah, it's, it's, this, it's this amazing new kind of universe by which we can mine this, this fantastically valuable and addictive resource. You, you mentioned the person who's above it all, above being a status, you know, person. And, and I re- there, there's this breed of person who is all about, you know, mindfulness on social media. And their whole, their whole brand is tied into how mindful they are. Yeah. And yet they're making like five different reels per day trying to talk about how mindful they are. 
Yeah. The tell is in the behavior, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you, if you really were above it or well, you wouldn't, I don't, you'd be on social media, but of course uh, I, I, yes. uh, there was a very funny study that I wrote about in the book where um, some psychologists in the Netherlands, they, they, they got, they, they found 3,700 people who practice mindfulness meditation specifically to reduce their status needs. I think they described it as ego needs, but you know, same thing really, um, you know, to, 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 to kind of get over this constant need they had to validation and status in the ego feeding. And they found that these people scored very high in what they described as um, spiritual superiority. So they were like answering questions like if, if, if only, if only, Everybody else had the insights I have. The world would be a much better place, <laughs> and all this stuff, you know. So, so the the better they got at mindfulness meditation, the more arrogant they got, and the more superior they felt to the people around them. Like, and I love it because it's funny because it's it's one of those classic things. It's funny because it's true. Like, we, we laugh because we it's absolutely predictable that people are going to do that because they're humans. That's what humans do, you know. Like, right? Yeah, you're going to get good at this thing, and you're going to think, well, I'm be- that makes me better than all these other people that don't figure out how smart I am and how great I am. So it's easy to see the hypocrisy of virtue games on social media, but 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 this is uh, just the amplification of what's happened throughout history. Can you yeah. talk about how the quest for status via virtue uh, manifests in religion and revolutions? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, that, that, that is, it, this has been going on for um, uh, as long as there have been people um, in the world. Um, it's quite interesting when you look at the... Um, people who study the, the conditions under which revolutions tend to happen. And, you know, from the outside, the expectation would be that revolutions happen when really poor people get sick of being really poor and mm-hmm. overturn the really rich people. But actually revolutions tend to happen um, in, in, in nations that, are, that have a much sort of bigger middle class. I mean, in Iran, it's looking like it's in a pre-revolutionary state at the moment. And if you see the women that are at the forefront of that, those protests they're middle-class women you know they're they're they're, they're, yeah so so uh, what it tends to be is when um um people's expected rewards fail to pay out so 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 even even though they're middle class relatively speaking but you know by western times might be poor they still feel like they're middle class and they they are above these people down here but when their expected rewards fail to pay out then that's when the revolutions sort of tend to happen when when um Yes. Yeah, so, so, so I thought, I thought that was really interesting, but I think the most interesting example from, well, I think there's two really interesting examples from Israel that go into in depth. The first one is, um, Nazi Germany and, 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 and how that, how humiliation and status was so deeply implicated, not only in the rise of Hitler, but also in the genocide that happened during the second world war. And the other really interesting example is, is communism. I mean, I mean, communism, I think is especially interesting because that was literally a massive social experiment. The whole point of communism was we're going to redesign human society in such a way. We talked before about getting along and getting ahead. We're going to take the getting ahead stuff out. So it's only getting along. And that's what communism is. It's communal. So everything is shared. There's no private property. Everything is shared. Um, you know, the early kind of purist companies even talked about sharing partners and, you know, um, families, you know, that, but, but there being no such thing as the family and actually just everyone living in this perfect community. And um, w- especially the final chapter of the status game is called the parable of the communists because it really brings in the whole theory and shows you why communism failed because they made a they made a basic error Karl Marx and the, and the early communists made a basic error they thought that it was wealth that created the status um the, the need we have for status and private property that created the, the need we have for status so if you take away wealth and private property nobody would crave status anymore we'd all be happy being equally poor or whatever you know equally they envisioned equally rich but you know as long as we we're equal that was fine but of course that's not true what we know now is that is that the status craving is is a fundamental part of our human nature and you can't get rid of it and that's what that's what the communist experiment showed i mean they tried to get rid of the class system but in the 1950s a sociologist went to soviet union and, and detected and said that and found 12 12 distinct social classes in, in the soviet union which is like more than we had in england at the time which is like right, a Muslim, right. you know class-bound culture and all they did was they just flipped it so the the people that were at the top were now at the bottom and the people who were at the bottom were now at the top and that, and that, 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 that's always what happens with these utopian movements. I mean, you, I mean, you could, I mean, I would argue, and I, I, you know, it might, it's probably a little bit controversial, but I would argue that a lot of the social justice, you know, the, on the extremes of the social justice movements we have today in the US, the UK and Canada, 
that's what they're doing too. You know, they, they talk about equality, but it's not about equality. It's about flipping the game. So the people who they, they perceived were at the top and now at the bottom and, and vice versa. You say the ultimate game, the ultimate purpose of status games is control. And you see that at the extremes of social justice and of the, 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 the complementary, uh, efforts at the, on the, on the other side of the political spectrum, right? Mm, so they're yeah. really, they're, they say they're fighting for principle, but they're fighting for control. And yeah. you say utopians talk of injustice while building new hierarchies and placing themselves on top. And, and, and in the, in, in the effort to get themselves on top, they utilize the weapons of, of shame and humiliation to, to, to cast out their enemies, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's where they earn the virtue status. And I think one of the things that really, so, you know, made it be get how to me when I was doing my research was that, you know, like I, I'm by instinct and, you know, experience a left wing, instinctively a left wing person. So, so my implicit assumptions always been more the virtue people are the good people that are changing the world. <laughs> Successfully, the evil capitalists, they're the villains, right? Yes. So that, yes. cause it seems obvious. Of course, that's true. But, but, but actually, when you think about it, who is changing the world? Is it the Pope and Michelle Obama or is it Steve Jobs? And, you know, AstraZeneca or Moderna, who, you know, whoever's inventing the COVID vaccine, who is lifting millions of billions of people out of poverty in Asia? Is it the capitalists or is it the Pope, Gandhi, Mother Teresa? It's the capitalists. You know, it's the people who right. are playing these success games. Um, so, 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 so I've gone off the, gone off the question slightly. But it was just to say that this, the, the kind of virtue thing is this, is this huge double-edged sword. Like when we think of virtue, we think of, we think of an un, unalloyed un, un good. But virtue is always in the context of, the, of your group. So, so you know, um, when you've got um, social justice people or Trumpy people or however you want to describe them, um, they feel virtuous when they're fighting on behalf of the moral code of their group. But it's a local moral code. So, you know, it almost seems banal to say, but of course, Hitler thought he was a good guy. Hitler thought he was morally good. <laughs> so, did, right, so, yeah. so did Lenin. So did Stalin, just because you think you are. But it's always local to your group. So it's, it's, so it's a kind of, yeah. So along those lines, and, and the reason they get followers is because the games that Hitler was playing served the people that were winning at those games. We'll, we will believe any dream of reality if our status depends on it. And you can see that in whatever political, whatever religious, whatever in capitalism could be described as a religion, right? If you're succeeding in capitalism, you're sure as shit going to believe in it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because your status depends on believing, on, depends on believing it. There, there was a really interesting researcher in the 70s called Jerome Burko who went to Africa, and was was interested in why um, why people were joining um, uh, is, is, is Islam is the religion of Islam, but also you know joining jihad, and um, a lot of these people were former royalty. So what had happened was that they, that they had been aristocrats in 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 in, in this city in in, a, in um, uh, it was called Katanga, uh, and um, the jihadists came in and and got rid of the aristocracy, got rid of the royalty, and you know created an islamic state so and these question was so why are these guys who used to be royal and had all their states taken away why are they joining why are they joining islam you'd think they'd be against it and so so he interviewed a whole bunch of these people and and, and he said well islam he didn't use this is my phrasing but islam is a status game like mm. people want status and it was the only way that you could earn status in that society so that's the game that you were going to play so what you found was that these kind of you know former royalty and descendants of former royalty would become incredibly zealous um muslims and and would you know spend hours learning the you know the, the holy books um and going through all the rituals and he had this great phrase where he'd say that um um you know the beliefs that they followed were, were their criteria for claiming status so they had to believe they were true because that was their criteria for claiming status and that's why religious people get so deeply offended when you say all this stuff is not true because you're not attacking their religion. You're attacking who they are. You're not attacking the, the, the status of Muhammad or Jesus or Buddha. You're attacking their personal status because that belief is their criteria for claiming status. And of course, that maps onto capital, to capitalists, that maps onto social justice warriors and Trumpists and Brexit people over here. The belief is their criteria for claiming status, which is why when you attack it, it's so deeply personal to people and people become so irrationally emotional and irrationally defensive of those um, beliefs. Let's talk about the insatiability of our need for status. You tell an anecdote, you, you share an anecdote about Paul McCartney in the book, 
which was really eye-opening to me. Will you recount that for us? Yeah, so I, I, I like this story because Paul McCartney, he's, he has a reputation for, of being just being a nice guy. Like he's not like he's not like a sort of you know uh, he, he, you know prima donna at all. He's he's not like a Kanye or a, or a Meghan Markle. He's just a nice guy, and it's he's quite astonishing because. Paul McCartney's probably had more status than almost anyone alive. Like who who can you think of who's got more status than Paul McCartney? He's just like, unbelievable. He's a beetle. Like, and he's yeah, the, yes. the good looking, sensitive beetle, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, like it's unbelievable the amount of status that guy is, has has drunk through, you know, since he Elton was, John wishes he was Paul McCartney. Absolutely right. And you can imagine, <laughs> you know, Prince like King well, he's King Charles now, or like Barack Obama feeling, oh my god, it's Paul McCartney, you know, like <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, yeah. He, he's up there, right? But what, what I loved about it was, was I, this, I, I met this guy who's a, one of these Beatles obsessives and he told me, do you know that Paul McCartney had this, has this obsession with um, whose name comes first on the, on, on, the, on, the, on the credits, on the records? Because when him and John Lennon um, first got together, for some reason, um, you know, when they were still like playing in, in the bedroom, they, they, they agreed that no matter who wrote the song, it would always say by Lennon and McCartney with Lennon's name first. And so that over the years has driven McCartney to absolute distraction. And he's had, and he's had several attempts at um, trying to negotiate a fairer, a fairer way of, uh, um, you, you know, um, uh, 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 of crediting this stuff, even to the extent where when he would do a live album, when there'd be a Paul McCartney live album that had some Beatles covers on, He'd, he'd credit them to McCartney and Lennon. And then Yoko Ono goes mad and starts kicking off, you know, because that's her, her status that's being attacked. So, so I just thought it was just hilarious, but also deeply telling that somebody as nice as Paul McCartney and who has had so much status is still driven to distraction by this silly little thing that all the songs are credited to Lennon and McCartney and not McCartney-Lennon. So what do we do about it, Will? Like, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of it in my own life, and I know it drives me crazy. I know it makes me less happy when I obsess on it. So, so, so what are the steps with, how do you harness it to, to live a more productive life, and how do you moderate it to not drive yourself bananas? So I think the first thing is to be careful of your virtue games. Like, I think that's really important. I, th- I think virtue is really um, seductive because it's the easiest form of status to um, get. I mean, if you're like a tough guy, then dominant status is the easiest form to get. But if you're just a, like a middle class book reader like me, dominance is not. <laughs> you know, but for, for most of us, um, for most of us. I have read almost 48 books this year, and that's, that is a source yeah. of my status, isn't it? If I tried pushing somebody around, it, it wouldn't go very well. Um, but, um, you know, for most of us, virtue is the easiest. I mean, especially with social media. I mean, to, to earn a bit of virtue status, all you've got to do is find somebody that's pl- that playing a different v- status game to you on social media and attack them in front of all your friends. And all your friends are going to go, yeah, you told them, you told them, uh, you know, it, it, uh, but it's, but, it, but it's, it, you haven't done anything, you know, as a friend of mine said recently, all you've done is move your thumb. That's literally what you've done. <laughs> so, so, so I, I think they're really dangerous. Uh, and they're also seductive because when we think of virtue, we forget that the virtue is local to our group. Uh, and actually, you know, when, when we're playing these virtue games, we might feel like Michelle Obama in the moment, but 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 how do we know that we're not Putin or uh, uh, or Lenin or you know one of these other people that were equally convinced of their moral status, but actually history or just one of their useful idiots, right? Yeah, well, even worse. Yeah, uh, so, so 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 be careful of the virtue game, um, and, and actually, I, I think pursue the success game. I mean, and and if you're a left wing minded person like me, it's it's a it's a, it feels paradoxical, but but once you just look at the world, it's it's inarguably true that if you want to change the world, you've got to work on your competence. You've got to focus your life on becoming really good at something, and if and if you do that, things will generally go well for you. It, you know, it's as simple as that. So that's the first thing. The second thing is like in terms of sort of hedging and making sure that the status game doesn't because the problem with status is that it never ends. Like it's not like. Like if you like if you want to pursue happiness, then belongingness is a much better thing, you know, thing to to focus on. Even though you still need the status, but so, but status gives us meaning. Uh, it gives us moments of intense joy. It also gives us moments of intense despair. But it never gives us the feeling of satisfaction. Like the status game never ends. Like you never like as the Paul McCartney instance shows. We can w- w- when psychologists try to find this the place where our need for status levels off, they can't find it. And, it, and, that, and that's different to power. When they, when they tr- people like, contrary to what you might expect, people's need for power tails off quite quickly because unless they are 
like like a you know like a world leader focused type of person who really wants power that's there's a tiny number of people most of us because with power does come responsibility and work and stress and most people are just like oh i don't want this i don't want all this power so uh, generally speaking our need for power levels off but the lead, need for status never does you know and, and it kind of it, it kind of like uh moves up in small degrees so so we, we move up a little bit and we go oh this is good then we want a bit more we want a bit more so, uh, so 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 our life is vulnerable when we basically just play one game you know when we play one status game um it's good in a way because all of our efforts are focused on becoming excellence at this one status game, but we're incredibly vulnerable because if things go wrong or um, if, you know, as we get older, younger, more ambitious rivals come up and start threatening and overtaking us, we're really vulnerable because when our, you know, because our status game is our identity. So if you take, you know, if, if, if all I am is a writer and you take that away from me, I'm going to become mentally ill i'm going to have a nervous breakdown and i'm not exaggerating you you like that that's why people who get cancelled or whatever suffer so terribly it's not the loss of the money it's the loss of identity it's the loss of their status so so, so i think that you know the, the the other sort of bit of advice in the book i give is play many games you, you, you know mm. it's it's no um coincidence that psychologists find that people who are emotionally more stable are members of multiple groups you know, and I believe that the, 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 what the, you know, the groups are obviously, obviously offering them belongingness, but they're also offering them status. And if you're a member of many groups, you're playing many games, then um, then you're then you're hedging. You're 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 in a much more secure position. So those groups might be the, the the place where I work or the industry I'm a part of, the religion I'm a part of, my weekend uh, lacrosse organization or whatever. What other areas of, of my life can I find to join groups? Any group um, in which you feel like you are being of value counts. So, 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 so literally as a direct result of this book, like when I wrote this book, I realized that I was, my, uh, I was the nightmare it was describing because I don't have children. So all I do is work. Like I've got my wife and she works hard too. And, and I don't, it's like, Jesus, like you don't do anything for anyone apart from your dogs. <laughs> like you live in entirely, like I, like I realize. I'll I argue, in- no, your work is, your work is service. I, I do believe your work is service. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But, 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 but it's vulnerable because it's, it was my only really source of status. So, so I've, I've started volunteering um, a charity. I don't know if you have it in the US called the Samaritans where, you know, people, I, I'm still training, uh, but, but, but it's a, basically you phone up if you're in despair and, you mm. know, they save lives. It, it, it's famously People who are suicidal phone up and, you know, you have to do things like people phone up in the, when they're in the middle of dying and you have to be there with them while they die. So it's really intense and difficult. Um, but, um, and it sounds awfully selfish, uh, but, but, you know, I, 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 I'm trained to be a Samaritan because I'm hedging. Oh, I, I need more status games to play. <laughs> and, and like, it sounds like it sounds so um, cynical, but it, but it really isn't because we, you know, the need for status is a is a fundamental human need, and everybody who's being trained with me right now, they're all in it for the same reason, you know. Even though, but it's just that the difference is they're not conscious of it, you know. They they say, right. oh, I just want to help, I want to give back. But yeah, you do what that's true. You, you do want to help, and you do want to give back, but that's because it, you're getting that feeling of being virtuous. So being mindful, and I don't mean being performatively mindful mm. or performatively virtuous but being mindful of the status games that we're playing can help us make better decisions and and just sort of evaluate our um success or lack thereof in each of those games absolutely and and and, you know i think the big thing to to embrace is 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 don't condescend to status you know when you think about status pursuit don't look down your nose at it because you need it too it's fun it's it's a part of our human nature yes it can Mm -hmm. be shallow and stupid and embarrassing but but it but it's also Many or most of the greatest, most profound, meaningful, um, memorable moments of our life have, uh, you know, are, are moments of sudden, you know, increased status. Like we need it. Um, pe- people who change the world and do incredible things are, are motivated by the need for status. So, so it, it, you know, in the book I describe it as this kind of social vitamin. It's like an essential vitamin that we need. We don't get it from food or the sun. We get it from our groups. Um, but without it, we become depressed. We become even physically unwell. So, 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 you know, the number one thing is to take it seriously. Like it really matters. And if I find myself feeling self-conscious about my relative lack of status with other people in, in any certain group, how do I, how do I rationalize that? 
Rationalization might be a pejorative word there. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do I how do I process that and and take a healthy approach to it? Yeah. So 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 uh, you know, I, I, again, I, I think it's one of those things where you know, like Carl Jung said, when you make the you know, you, you should always try and make the unconscious conscious, and just simply by doing that helps. Understanding why you're feeling uncomfortable um, 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 really you know helps, and. You know, and it, it is things like you know, say if you're you know naturally. I mean, I'm naturally quite a scruffy person, and 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 before knowing about this, I'm um, you know going somewhere. I might I might have said to my rationalised myself, well, like, you know, why should I spend all this money on clothes? It doesn't matter. It's just it's just clothes. It doesn't matter. But now I understand. Well, actually, if I go into a group and I look scruffy, people are going to be, people are going to be looking at me, and I'm going to sense that they're thinking, who is this scruffy git? And that's going to make me feel bad. So, 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 you know, it matters. So, so, so when you look at stuff through the, through the lens of status, so many things that didn't once make sense suddenly make sense and you understand why they're important. Ah, that's why I should make an effort in doing these things. And, and I think if you're chronically deprived of status in any group, you should just leave the group. Like you kind of have to leave the group, find something else to do and don't get too hung up with money either because the, you know, the, 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 the evidence, the data is absolutely consistent that it's not money that makes us happy it's status we haven't evolved to crave money money hasn't been around long enough we've evolved to crave status and money is just one marker of status so it is much better you know you talk about the big fish in the small pond it's always better to be the bigger fish in the smaller pond because that's what the brain wants to see and 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 when the brain when that when that status detection system detects that we are a relatively big fish it's going to think oh i'm thriving i'm happy things are good and we're going to feel happier and we're going to get healthier mentally and physically. The book is called The Status Game, and unless you're in the UK where it's called The Status Game. <laughs> and the author is my guest today, Will Storr. Will, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Well, um, may, best place is Twitter, I would say, at WStore, which is W-S-T-O-R-R. Hey, man, thanks so much for your time and thanks for your work in this book. No, thanks for your great questions, Paul. I had a great fun uh, talking to you. Thank you. Hey, everybody, if you like what we're up to here at Crazy Money, do us and yourself a favor by following the show on your favorite podcast app and subscribing to our YouTube channel. Also, click the link in the show notes to subscribe to my new Substack, where you'll get biweekly thoughts on the role of money in our world and in our lives directly to your email inbox. Thanks for sticking around. We'll see you next week.